0: Maybe you've heard me say before, kind of the little funny deal if you knew about me what I know about me, you wouldn't have shown up this morning. But if I knew about you what you know about you, I would have locked the doors and not let you in. (laughs) Always count on my brother Justin. It's kind of funny. And I guess it gets to the reality that we all know that despite our appearances, we know ourselves to be greater sinners than we might put on. And of course, that whole thing about not letting you in is nonsense. Because this is the place for sinners. For humble sinners who know that they have fallen short of the glory of God. This is the place for you. Because just look around. To your right, to your left, in front, in back. We're a room full of sinners. That's what the Bible so clearly teaches. In just a moment, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark. But I'd first like you to turn to Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, And then the book of Romans. Um, In this incredible letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Roman church. He had never been to Rome, but he was looking forward, if God would will, to come there to spend some time with them but then be helped by them on his way to Spain because he wanted to take the, the gospel even further west and proclaim Christ where he had not yet been known. And so in preparation of his coming and probably to establish Rome as the next uh, center of missionary activity for the Apostle Paul to take the gospel even further, he writes this letter. Probably it's been called the fullest expression of his theology. It's certainly not a full theology of the Apostle Paul. That's why we have all of his letters. But this is a fuller expression of what he believed. And believe it or not, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, it's nothing but bad news. 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In 118, down through verse 32, he is showing that though God has made himself known in the creation, And through it, we can know God to some extent and worship him and thank him for his greatness and goodness towards us. We don't. All of mankind has turned away. And a phrase he uses time and time again is, we have no excuse. In chapter 2, verses 1 down through 16, there's some debate as to whether or not he's taking up his Jewish audience at this point or talking about the Jews, or maybe he's just talking about the moral man, the man, the woman who thinks they are without sin, who thinks they are better than others. In in chapter 2, 1 through 16, Paul's going to say, no, you might look down your nose at other sinners, but the reality is that you sin in the very same way. And he expressly in chapter 2, verse 17, picks up, On the Jews. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? That even though his Jewish audience had all of the privileges of the law of God, they themselves could not keep it. And so in chapter 3, verse 9, all the way through verse 20, he sums it all up. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is just... Rounding up Old Testament scripture to support his point that there's not one of us who is without sin. All of us are unrighteous before a holy God. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, and he's just been quoting it extensively, it speaks to those who are under the law his Jewish audience, he he would have known his Jewish audience, knew that the Gentile audience were sinners, but now he's quoting all of these Old Testament texts to to let his Jewish audience know that they too, Gentile and Jew alike, in verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you were studying the book of Romans, you would say that 118 all the way to 320 is summarized in one word, condemnation. Uh, Paul will sum it up in a few verses later, 3:23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, or yes, yeah, seven verse twenty. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. If you're familiar with the story in John eight, where the woman caught in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus. What's to be done to her? Jesus begins to write on the ground. It's an interesting story. But then Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The Bible goes on to say, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Let him who's without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And all of those accusers, starting with the old guys first, why is that? Because we old guys know. There's no more pretension. We've been around long enough to know I'm not without sin. But the old guys left and then the younger guys left because the reality is there's not one of us who is without sin. It's a bad deal, isn't it? And the reality is yes, because the teaching of the Bible is that apart from Christ, our sin separates us from God. And it places us rightly under his judgment. And it leaves us in desperate need of forgiveness. The message of the Bible is not you are a sinner, get your act together. It is you are a sinner, and you desperately need forgiveness. Well, where can forgiveness be found? Mark chapter 2 is where we are, so please turn there in your Bibles. If you're new to Redeemer Community Church, we are making our way through the gospel of Mark. And from chapter 2, all the way through the chapter, into chapter 3 to verse 6 is this next section in the book. And probably one of the themes that kind of binds all of these stories together is the opposition from Jewish leaders. We'll see it in this story this morning in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And down in verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And there down in verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him. And in chapter 3. Verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And it comes to its crescendo maybe in verse 6 of chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. But beginning in this section, we have a wonderful little story. Let's begin in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. If you were with us last week, you know that Jesus had come into Capernaum and he had begun to do miracles and he had begun to teach. And as a result of that, the crowds were coming to him. Jesus, not wanting them to misunderstand and believe that that was his primary purpose, to come and heal their diseases and heal their sicknesses and ultimately feed their bellies and the like. Jesus went away from Capernaum. Even as the crowds were coming and everybody's looking for him, he said to his disciples there in verse 38 of chapter 1, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And so he did. He, he went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching, casting out demons. But now he has come back to Capernaum, that little city on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And it was heard that he was there. And as you can imagine, as the word got out that Jesus was back in town, verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no longer room Not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. I think one of the first points that we're going to see here in the text is that sin really is our biggest problem. We see it, I think, here in the priority of Jesus' ministry as the crowds are coming. There's no doubt why they're coming. Just as they were coming in the previous chapter, they're coming here again. And one of the fellows I studied this week, he said that crowds are mentioned 40 times in the Gospel of Mark before chapter 10. But you never see the crowds responding in repentance and faith. They're always, I don't think that's too strong of a word, obstacles to those who really do want to experience the life-giving nature of Jesus Christ. All the crowds are in the way. They're there probably because they again want Jesus to heal their diseases. But he was speaking the word to them. That was the priority, just like we saw it up there in chapter 1. That's what I've come for is to proclaim to the people that the kingdom of God is at hand. That all of the promises of the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom of God are beginning to be fulfilled. I am here, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that the proper response to it there in chapter 1 verse 15 is to repent and believe the gospel. To turn away from your sins which separate you from God and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then to follow him. Even as the crowds were there, that is what he was focusing on. And then look at verse 3. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting. It's not so much expected that those would be the words out of Jesus' mouth. They certainly probably weren't looking for that. But there's something about these men. Was it four men full of faith, or was it five? I tend to believe that even the paralytic himself was a man of faith. He knew that Jesus Christ could heal him if he willed. These men would not let anything get in the way of putting their need before Jesus. And Jesus loved that. He saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It's unexpected because There's a very present need right here in front of Jesus. This man can't move. We don't know how paralyzed, to what extent he was, but that was clearly why they were bringing him to Jesus. His need was so evident, and yet Jesus speaks that your sins are forgiven. And I think it's probably clear to all of us, I think so, If I understand it rightly, why would Jesus say such a thing? Because Jesus understood that this is the greatest need that the man has. It's not his physical paralysis, but it's his sins. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Let's go to the other cities and the towns so that I can preach there also. That's why I've come, is to let them know that the kingdom of God is here and that the proper response is repentance and faith and following me. Yes, what I've come to do will touch upon all of the effects of the fall. One day. But primarily right now, this is what I've come for is to reconcile sinners back to God. It is our greatest need as well. And those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I think we well know this. But Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus. Maybe you've come to Jesus hoping for a physical healing. Or maybe you've come to Jesus because you've got some other circumstances in your life that you sure would love for him to make right. Maybe you're in a financial strait and you're thinking, boy, maybe if I'll come to Jesus, maybe if if I'll try Jesus, he'll fix my financial strait. Or maybe you're, Maybe you're here and your marriage is just falling apart and and you're thinking well maybe if I maybe if I if I try Jesus if I go to Jesus maybe he'll fix my marriage. Or maybe you've got estranged children and you just don't know what to do about that and you're thinking boy if I come to Jesus Jesus will make it right. There are a host of reasons why we might come to Jesus with the brokenness of our lives in hopes that he will fix them. And friends, what Jesus Christ has come to do touches upon all of that. But the most crucial need you have is your sins need to be forgiven. All of us sin in thought, in the words, in deeds. We sin by commission. That's doing things we shouldn't. We sin by omission. That's not doing things we should. We may be rich or we may be poor, but we can still sin. We may be old or we may be young, we still sin. We may be male, we may be female, we still sin. We may be red, yellow, black, or white, and we're all precious in his sight, but we're also all sinners. I love the one, you may be smart or not, or to put it the other way, you may be magnum cum laude or laudy how come. No amount of degrees on your wall or mine fixes the sin problem. You may be good looking, maybe not. But every single one of us has this seething bent in towards self rather than out towards God and others. We were born in Sin. And it can lead to the major sins, we might call them major sins, of society that we all scoff at. We could probably come up with a good list of those, but it also leads to those minor, quote, respectable sins. Those that are more refined and subtle that we can hide or at least we've come to be okay with. Jerry Bridges was a wonderful Christian author. He passed away several years ago, but he wrote a book called Respectable Sins, calling upon God's people, not just to make war against the big sins, but even to make war by the power of the Spirit against our pride and against our apathy and against our complaining and against our gossip and against our fantasy worlds and against our Isolation and against our passivity or our workaholism, or so many of these more subtle and refined sins that we think, as long as I'm not doing the biggies, I'm all right. And yet, Jesus, God, is calling us to holiness down to the innermost being. Our greatest need. Again, friends, if you've come here and you're looking for Jesus, like a you know, like a genie in a bottle, you know. I'll just rub him, he'll pop out, and he'll, you know, give me three wishes. No. He says our greatest needs are our sin. We believe in a doctrine called total depravity. R.C. Sproul, a wonderful theologian, said it like this, the idea of total depravity in total depravity, doesn't mean that all human beings are as wicked as they can possibly be. It means that the fall into sin was so serious that it affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies That's why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible says the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We're enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit. Indeed, the whole person has been infected by the power of sin. There's no part of you or me that hasn't been touched by the ravaging powers of sin. We do not think as we should. We do not feel as we should. We don't do as we should. We are totally depraved. And Justin gave us an amen earlier. He says, I put the T in total depravity. Not me. Justin says that about himself. Some movements want to take this word out of our hymns. We don't. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. This is our greatest problem, is that we have sinned against God and we desperately need his forgiveness. But here we see Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven. So while sin is our biggest problem, Jesus is our wonderful solution. He claims the ability to forgive sins. Who talks like that? That's going to be the response of the scribes. I mean, they were the learned ones, and yet they never claimed to forgive anyone's sins. And what Jesus is claiming here is he's not saying to this paralytic, I I forgive the way that you've sinned against me. You and I can do that. When someone sins against us and asks us for forgiveness, I forgive you. But Jesus is claiming the ability here, the authority here to forgive all of his sins that he's committed against God and others. Not one of us would claim that kind of authority. To forgive is to release sinners from God's just penalty and the complete dismissal of all charges Against us. And Jesus says, "Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are many. It's your greatest problem. It separated you from God. It has you under His just penalty. But they're gone. They're gone. They're forgiven. And, of course, the opposition is incredulous at this. Verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was claiming to speak for God. And for them, that was blasphemy. One author said this, the scribes are no less dependent on Jesus than is the paralytic for the work of God. They needed Jesus just as much as the paralytic did, but their learning and their status made them less aware of their need for it. So Jesus, though, is going to validate his claim to be able to pronounce the forgiveness of a person's sins. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk most understand Jesus to mean here that the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven as astounding as it is that someone would say such a thing that's easier to say because you can't validate it it would be much harder to say to the paralytic get up pick up your pallet and walk because if he doesn't get up pick up his pallet and walk you know that Jesus' words are empty. Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. He got up, immediately picked up the pallet, and went out of in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Verse five, your sins are forgiven. Verse nine, your sins are forgiven. Verse ten, authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what this little story is about. All of us have sinned, but in Jesus. We can have forgiveness. Jesus could talk this way because he knew what he had come to do. That his destiny was a death upon the cross to ransom sinners for God. If you'll keep your finger here and go over to Mark chapter 8. Jesus knew what was coming. In verse 31 of chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Over in chapter 9, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And over in chapter 10, verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus knew what he had come to do, and it was to give his life upon a cross having fulfilled it to be raised from the dead. And we get a little bit more into this death in chapter 10, verse 45, where he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One of the things that Jesus has come to do is to redeem us. We are Redeemer Community Church because we glory in the fact that Jesus Christ came, we were in bondage to sin and to Satan and ultimately to death, eternal death. But Jesus came to pay a ransom and thus purchase us back to be his. That ransom would be his life that he would give upon the cross. Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament promise as the suffering servant of Isaiah. And in chapter 53 of Isaiah, it says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus knew what he had come to do was to go to the cross and take your sins and mine upon himself and to experience the wrath of God meant for us in himself such that any who would look to him can be forgiven. Sins washed away. And So those of us who know him There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven by God. And if, again, you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, this is one of my favorite verses. In the Bible, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, he's one of the authors in the New Testament who wrote so many of these books, He was thinking about what God had done in his life and how before he was a Christian, he was a violent aggressor, a blasphemer, a hater of Christ and the church. And then he said, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorantly and unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And then he go. he said, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he said of himself, among whom I'm the chief, foremost of all, maybe you're here and you're going, can't be for me. Sounds too good to be true. Maybe he can forgive you, Mitch, but he can't forgive me. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance by everybody in this room that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If he can save a guy like Paul, he can save somebody like you. That's why he came. This is why I've come, he said to his disciples. So let's go to those other cities and let people know that I'm here. that they can be forgiven of their sins. This is a neat little book. Got it years ago. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians. It was written by a pastor named Milton Vincent. It began as his own attempts just to get his head and his heart around the goodness of God in the gospel of Jesus. And then it turned in from his little notes into a little spiral bound like this. And then from there it went on to be published as a book. I want to read some of it to you. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he has created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him, to him all, in all of my ways. Yet, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over my life, I have rebelled against him and have actively sought to exalt myself above him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's ten commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from me, I am also utterly deserving of, or I'm sorry, apart from Christ, I am also utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all. Sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me his child, adopting me into his family. He gave me this gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from the slavery to any and all my sins. I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. and being justified through Christ, I have peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins, pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me, and his love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God also looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I am a justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he already has forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words out of of my confession, out of my mouth. God does see my sins. He's grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he's for me and loves me and he disciplines me for my ultimate good. And then he closes. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. has authority to forgive sins. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, run to him today. Don't run to him with promises of how you're going to do better. Don't run to him with promises of how you're going to shape up. Run to him and say, "I, I need forgiveness and I need help. I realize that you've died upon a cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I take you as my Savior. Help me. Friends, he stands with open arms to any humble sinner who will come to him. He will say to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And he'll make you part of his family. And he'll give you his spirit. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. And in this life, he may not heal all your diseases. And in this life, he might not fix your kids. And in this life, your marriage might not ever be meet all of your hopes and expectations. And in this life, trial may follow trial. But he will be with you every step of the way. And one day, he will come again, and he will make all things right. And you will be with him forever and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have come to meet us at our deepest need, our estrangement from you because of our rebellion. Thank you for sending your son to come, to live, to die in our place for our sins absorbing in himself the wrath of God and then to rise alive forevermore, willing and able to extend his forgiveness and his new life to any and all who will humbly come to him. God might use sovereignly, powerfully, mercifully any here today who've never put their faith in Jesus, might they this moment say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he might be the forgiver of their sins and the new and wonderful leader of their lives. We'll pray it In the glorious and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Amen.